if I think about it in any other domain, business or military or manufacturing, that there's no way that that's the type of leader that I would want. An, an individual that, uh, you know, talks about their own toughness and their own uh, kind of, you know, the, they, talk, they call it masculinity, but it's not just, it's not just men. It's the performance of masculinity and bravery, mm. puffing my chest out, and it's all on me, and I'm the leader, and you know, and uh, and then the ultimate individual—it's all falls on me. That's not the leader of a good organization, modern organization. And so, yeah, we 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 need to start to address that. And I think education is one part. Yeah, actually getting in and, and coaching coaches on the job about the organizational dynamic and the impacts of things and dealing with all of that emotional toll. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile. And we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional, or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. The Supporting Champions podcast is sponsored by Athlete Now, a new venture I'm involved in. Now, Athlete Now is a new platform that's revolutionizing the connection between athletes and sports performance practitioners. We know that in the world of sports, the pursuit of peak performance is a constant journey and it can often feel like a bit of a solo mission. And nowadays, with the high tech landscape of wearables, nutrition, mental training, Navigating your path to excellence might seem overwhelming. An athlete now aims to demystify this process, offering you straightforward guidance. So athlete now or theathletenow.com, what's it all about? Well, if you're an athlete, then you know that the margin between good and great is influenced often by the expertise that's guiding you. But where can you find that expertise? Athlete Now offers the answer, granting you access to a curated selection of sports science, medicine and coaching professionals. And they're not just qualified, but they're rigorously vetted so that you can search by experience, specialism, location or accreditation to suit your needs. And Athlete Now is emerging as the solution for athletes seeking to push their limits and get the support they need. For the professional practitioners listening in, Athlete Now solves the age-old question, how do you stand out in a sea of talent? And the platform not only showcases your skills, but connects you directly with those who need them most. So whether you're a nutritionist whose strategies are fueling the champions, or a psychologist whose techniques are helping athletes to cope, strive and perform, 
Athlete Now is your stage. For athletes, the platform is free. And for practitioners, you can sign up half price for this first year. Only £10 for the foundation tier, which will allow you to get your profile started. Or upgrade for the professional tier, where you can get advanced features such as the job boards, community access and practice guides. And that's just for £50 per year. So Athlete Now is more than just a directory. It's a community committed to excellence ensuring athletes and sports professionals are perfectly paired to help support each other's ambitions together. So whether you're striving to compete or building a career, helping others do so, Athlete Now is really where it's at. So take a look at theathletenow.com. In today's episode, we are diving back into the intricate world of sports coaching with return guest Cody Royal, author of A Second Set of Eyes. Now, Cody is carving out a niche in coaching coaches. And the reason he's doing that is because coaches need people to lean on. And so we explore this particular concept and share insights from leading coaches who are gathering that emotional support, loyal advisors and mentors, or having a team around them to sound out new ideas. And so we delve into the traits of expert coaches the necessity of having trustworthiness in coaching relationships. And we examined some of these themes, examining paradoxes such as heroism in sports, the predominant notions of masculinity and individualism, basically loneliness in this particular field. And Cody has really clear thinking on this and his advice in this conversation spans across the spectrum from offering guidance to employers, to coaches, support providers and athletes alike in this multifaceted world of sports coaching. Hey, well, welcome back to the podcast, Cody. You must be doing something good because there are not many people who've been asked back on the Supporting Champions podcast. So welcome, welcome back. How are you? I'm fantastic, mate. Thanks for having me back. I didn't know that there weren't too many returning people, but I just, I write books solely to come back on here and get to chat with you. I was saying this recently uh, to, to Jenna Ashworth, and Alison Maitland, who wrote a book, and I was thinking, oh, God, we've, we've got a lot of authors on at the moment. But actually, I think that's probably fair enough. I love the fact that that you are synthesizing your thoughts. I love the fact that other people are. And I think it should be given that credit to, if you've committed your thoughts into into a book, uh, it needs some airtime. It needs to be shared. So um, we'll, we'll get into, into your new book, Second Set of Eyes. How great coaches become champions. Nice champion theme there. Um, so what's what's happened since we last spoke? Well, that's a great place to start because it really the last time we spoke, you know, I'd written The Tough Stuff, which is a book about the emotional toll of head coaching. And that's kind of led me on this journey. You know, I was still coaching my team when that book came out, uh, you know, perfectly happy to continue doing that. And once people started reading the tough stuff, I started getting a, approached a lot of emails and DMs on Twitter and saying, hey, uh, never seen my experience represented 
in this way before, um, but I feel it and I know I've been feeling it, but no one ever talks about it. And then can you help me with some of the things that, that you've written about? And so I've ended up, yeah, coaching head coaches, not by design, but just by circumstance. And that's the reason for Second Set of Eyes is really been running into a lot of misconceptions about what that is and what it looks like and uh, what the intent is and um, what the outcomes are. And so I, I wanted to give this idea of the head coach having a coach a bit of a platform. And so hence the book, because as we were just talking about, it's unparalleled what a book can do for a particular topic. Right. Even when it's quite well known and everyone's doing it, you know, like I, I use James Kerr's example, like we were kind of all doing culture and we knew, but it, it gave us this consolidating document legacy. It was like you can hand it to someone and say, this is what I'm talking about. And so I, I was kind of aiming for that with coaching coaches because it's so prevalent in other industries like business. And so well known, and there's such an industry around leaders having a coach themselves. I, I wanted to bring a little bit of that to sport, where it should be understood, <laughs> but it's not. And so, are you doing this for a living now? Is this your job? You coach coaches. That's your that's your work. Yeah, yeah, full time coaching head coaches. I work with coaches all around the world, uh, team invasion sports. Uh, just because that's my background and I don't really understand, you know, a lot of the Olympic sports and um, reps and sets and things like that. And so I've stayed into my team invasion sports group. But, yeah, uh, pro coaches that are trying to do big things and really trying to push their own performance to new levels. There was something about the tough stuff and where others won't, that just that sense of vulnerability and that honesty that – that I resonated with, there was a sense of there's no one really talking about this topic in the same in the same vein. So I can, I've no, I'm not surprised that it's pioneered an, a, a space. So it sounds as though there was a, a sense of, and, and obviously not to sort of cut and paste this quite cherished phrase, but me too, in the sense of, hey, hang on, I, I could, I, I've got these feelings as well. Um, and then I suppose was that asked, was that did that bridge into a question of ah are you supporting people like me could you do that for me yeah I think so and and it arrived at a time where that started to be on the table where it wasn't previously you know COVID and what it did to coaches where you know we forget this so quickly there was that period of time where we thought all the leagues were going to collapse, right? Like the, the TV revenue, if they weren't playing, there was no TV revenue and the teams were going to collapse and, the, you know, it was, it was dire. And so you've got all these, particularly head coaches, sitting in their back garden, staring off into the blue sky, wondering about their identity and who I am and reflecting and all these kind of things. And so when you insert something about, their emotion and what they've been going through and being on the hamster wheel into that space, there was a timeliness to it, I think. And then also, and, and 
what I would say now is, you know, I'm not a I'm not a well-being guy. I'm not particularly interested in well-being other than I know it's a core pillar of performance. I'm a performance guy. I'm interested in winning things. And and so I've kind of really shifted it away from well-being and into performance. I'm interested in coaching performance and the coach in particular, their individual performance, knowing how much of an impact that has on the staff, the the actual team. And so really we're having a performance conversation and that's where the champions element comes into it. It's like, no, this, this isn't about well-being and meditation and things like that. This is about you winning things and I can support them. Mm. You said something a minute ago about um, sort of sticking in your lane around sort of sticking to invasion games. Um, does that matter? Does that matter that you don't know interval sets and um, and structures of strength power sessions for athlete, classic athletic performance? Do you think it? Do you think your experience or your philosophy are enough? Yeah, it's a personal choice that I've made to stay in those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, you could certainly. And I have, don't get me wrong, I've done, I've worked with tennis coaches and things like that where I don't fully understand the training methodology. And yeah, the, the common experience is the human experience of going through those things and dealing with selection and deselection and troublesome athletes and parents and uh, staff and all of those things. So, so they, they definitely do translate and. Um, yeah, for me, that's more so my personal choice because I'm more interested in the, the team invasion sports. And I think I have more to offer there. But yeah, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think they can both really help each other because they do come from slightly different experiences, but ultimately that same human element that underpins it all. Yeah. And so would you coach business executives too? Maybe eventually. Yeah, I, I've really set myself to, you know, I, I want to be a leader in this space and I want that focus. And the first thing that people started saying to me is, oh, get get some CEOs, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, pays handsomely and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, I've been in, in business. I was working whilst I was coaching uh, I, I know the corporate world. I think I can go back into that world, but I, I really want to solve this one particular problem. And if I get blinded by just taking, you know, CEO money because it's good, I think it detracts from that a little bit. I, the group I want to help is head coaches in elite sport, and uh, eventually that might translate into to working with some executives. But I'm mm. not in a rush to get there. Mm, interesting. And so, coaching coaches. Uh, do you have a coach? What I have is a board of directors, I guess you would call it. Right. Talking of corporate worlds. Uh, yeah, so about five people that I go to with various problems. Depending on what that problem is and what type of solution I might be looking for or their expertise. And so, yeah, I... That's one approach that you can also take if you if, if you don't necessarily want just one coach. You know, in the book I give the example of Emma Hayes and 
uh, you know, she recently spoke in her book about having five or six people that she goes to. That's a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth set of eyes on her work. Mm. And that's an effective way to do it as well in terms of getting different perspectives, but also just having more people around you that can hold you accountable and, um, and offer guidance, but also a slightly different perspective. Yeah. It's something that um, I've sort of reflected on recently, probably had a business coach early in our work. Um, I had, I certainly had a coach on two different occasions in my career as a leader, my first sort of foray into leadership, and then the second sort of stepping up to a, to more executive role. Um, and I don't at the moment, but I do have that group of people that I can call on regularly to sound ideas, not necessarily in a structured formal relationship, but, but, um, and it feels quite collaborative that there's, there's peer support there. Um, and, um, and I think that's a nice, that's a nice way of doing it because it has breadth that you can sort of cherry pick a little bit, can't you? Um, one of the things that, um, I that st- stood out reading your, your book there was the phrase, don't try to do it all of this today. Um, in that sense of <clears throat> impatience, in that sense of accomplishment, immediacy, um, that felt a bit like it was, it was the sort of nub of one of the big problems about how short-term a coach feels as though their tenure might be and so they want to they want to leap out of the traps um, because they have this fear sitting over them. Um, it was just really interesting that you shared that really early in the book of that that feeling and that pressure that that coaches feel. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That was advice given to Steve Wojcikowski, who's you know. Uh, uh, a famous former captain of Duke men's basketball, you know, 20 years as an assistant to Coach K and then you know, gets his first head coaching gig himself and, and you know, gets call from, I think it was the Notre Dame head coach at the time, Mike Braid, and that was his advice. And, you know, Wojo spoken to him a lot recently and, you know, he openly says, and I think I even detailed this in the book. He's like, I, I heard it, but I didn't hear it. I thought it was a little bit, yeah, okay, but like, shut up, I've got this. And, you know, uh, I think that's a pretty common way of going into a job, particularly when you're young and you're enthusiastic and you, you do have maybe a little bit of, maybe a little bit of extra bandwidth and you can take on some heavy challenges, but, it, you, we, we, we have enough of a pattern. We can recognize the pattern enough across all of these sports now and the size that they're at that once you're on that hamster wheel, yeah, you might get a couple of months in, but you, you can't do it all on your own. And trying is, is going to really impact your longevity. And so the question starts to become immediately, and this is why I wanted to start that way with 
we need to attack this singular idea, this idea of individualism and I can do it, self-reliance and, and toughness. And uh, we need to start to unpack that idea and go, I believe, go in the other way. Who are the team that are going to help me, even if we've only got three months, even if this is a rescue mission, save a team from, uh, from relegation, we've got a couple of months. The individualism idea is still let's go in this with collectivism. Who is the team? Who is going to coach me so that I can go hammer and tong 20 hours a day for three months because that's the project? How do we set that up so that I can do that to the best of my ability? I think that's a smarter entry point for, for a lot of this given, yeah, we don't have a lot of time anymore. The average tenure in the championship when I wrote the book was 0.8 years. It's like nine months. Hmm. So if you want to go hard, that's fine, but let's plan to go hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm, str- I'm, I'm remembering a conversation with the Premier League manager that we had on the podcast, Nigel Adkins, and, and I felt uncomfortable as he's describing, that's the way it is at the moment. You, you go in knowing that. You know that that's going to be the case. Five, five losses and you're out. That's the sort of contract level that, that modern coaches are, are dealing with. And we can perhaps get on to the employers, the CEOs, the, the people who are, are making some of those environmental decisions. Um, but, but why do you, what was the phrase? Uh, chronic individualism. Um, why? And so which, that speaks to that machismo, doesn't it? Why, why is that there, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a perception of what a leader is that has persisted from previous generation. And one of the things that perhaps goes underappreciated is how fast things have changed in the size of our organizations. Mm. The example that I, I use when I talk about this is, is actually from the tough stuff. You know, 2002 or 2006, maybe, you know, Tony Granado, the NHL coach, he's coaching Colorado Avalanche, one of the best teams ever put together in, in the NHL, one head coach and one assistant coach. That's the only staff. And so that's one of the biggest leagues in the world and we're talking about you know 20 years ago two staff this this idea of running an organization and a head coach being the face of a whole organization where there's now departments it's not just staff it's departments of staff and running it that that's a relatively new concept and so we're still trying to tackle that challenge with the old world mentality of it's just me and my assistant and we're going to have to do all the work because that's the way that it is. And, and that's, that's the big change. And it's a new change and it doesn't get brought into hiring processes. It's not thought of by boards that are hiring or going into hiring processes, certainly not thought of by a lot of coaches. Um, but it, it needs to be. Because, yeah, I agree with, with Nigel. It's like, that's fine that it, that's the current uh, circumstance, but are we okay with that? And are there ways that we can try to elongate that and, and get 
get more, more time back for our coaches because we know that we're in a human endeavour and change takes time and leadership takes time and we're not given the time. So let's try to wrestle some of it back because uh, it doesn't have to be like this. So do you think the, the growth of support teams, experts, specialists, adding to layers within an organisation, adding to complexity, do you think that's making things worse for coaches? Better and worse, right? Like it's a double-edged sword. It's We can get through a lot more work faster. We can have more FaceTime and touch points with our athletes. Their care is high. But also the reality is those departments take management. Ultimately, the head coach's success, for the most part, kind of dictates whether those departments and the people within them have jobs. And it's not 100% of the the time, obviously, uh, but often. And so that, that adds to the weight that they experience. They now have... You know, in, in the AFL, there's 50 players on a, on a team or 44 players on a roster. So you've got them and all their parents and their kids and everything. And then you've got another maybe 30 staff. And so now as the head coach, you're, you're looking at 70, 80 people that you're responsible for. And the weight of that is, uh, is quite a lot on its own. Then you're going into the organizational dynamics about how is this information flowing? Where is it going? When there's a breakdown in a return to play uh, methodology, where did it happen enough? So now I've got to take myself out of training, planning tomorrow to go and try to find where the breakdown was. And, you know, that kind of thing is, is still new to us, but, but that's becoming the work. And so the answer to your question is it's it's great and it's a, a new world and it's tough at the same time. And we're not head coaches aren't educated into how to run an organization. They're educated into mm. how far apart the cones need to be to run the perfect training session. Uh, and that touches on I think one of the bullet points that you create you listed some research from cardiff i think it was i haven't dug into who who the authors are but coaching as the performance of masculinity coaching is an individual phenomenon and coaching is a greedy institution um these feel like they would probably warrant if you were to sort of anticipate that as an outcome of a coach's performance as a CEO, thinking about trying to get your organization performing, um, it's, it's quite difficult for me to see that, that, that and, or anticipate that that's what I'm employing or that's what I'm letting loose into an organization. And is there no sense of sort of training and development to, to enhance someone's forethought about how they want to come across how they want to lead, how they want to embrace other other views. As you say, the sort of coach education routes typically are energy systems and sort of basic mental skills and some tactical play and not how you're going to lead necessarily. Yeah. No, it's, it's not really factored in. There are some organizations starting to go that way in their development and 
and really trying to educate head coaches. Uh, I think what we're creating right now is really, really good assistant coaches. And we, we put them then because of their maybe tactical brilliance, we put them into the head coaching role and hope they can do the rest and hope that they learn on the job. And whilst that's possible, I don't think that's the best way for us to be doing it. But, yeah, the, I mean, the Cardiff research was, was eye-opening and, you know, you've, you've read the book, but it's, you know, I, I love that every chapter is based around one piece of research. And so it's, it's taking it out of this is my opinion and putting it into I'm going to go and gather all of the research. And, and that one, that's why, again, I wanted to start with that problem is because that's such a compelling piece of, of work that when we go and look at, yeah, the behaviours that coaches exude, that's what comes out. And, and then to your point, this is what I'm letting loose into my organisation and if I think about it in any other domain, business or military or manufacturing, there's no way that that's the type of leader that I would want. An, an individual that, uh, you know, talks about their own toughness and their own uh, kind of, you know, the, they, talk, they call it masculinity, but it's not just, it's not just men. It's the performance of masculinity and bravery, mm. puffing my chest out, and it's all on me, and I'm the leader, and you know, and uh, and then the ultimate individual, it all falls on me. That's not the leader of a good organization, modern organization. And so, yeah, we 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 need to start to address that, and I think education is one part. Yeah, actually getting in and, and coaching coaches on the job about the organizational dynamic and the impacts of things and dealing with all of that emotional toll. That's where I've seen a lot of my success is getting in there with coaches and doing on the job, not making them sit on another webinar and thinking that's good enough. The, the word heroism that you've mentioned a couple of times, um, that we, we want heroic performances from sport. What feels quite counterintuitive here is that we hold sport up to be sort of purer uh, than society or business or politics. Now, if we don't like it in sport, cheating, simulation, dirty play, doping, sore losers even, then we definitely don't like it in society. But we, we sort of, you know, if someone cheats in sport, it's absolute, you know, back page, front page news. There's a bit of cheating going on in society. Like sports held up this higher level of, of purer, we've got to do this well, but it doesn't necessarily spill over to how we lead, how we coach until maybe recently. It feels as though there is a, an avant-garde new wave of, of coaches who are prepared to speak about emotion uh, use other coaches around them, um, express ambiguity in their post-match interviews um, that that are starting to shine a bit of a light on this area. Yeah, there is. And it's refreshing, isn't it? Yeah. People and like Guardioli, you, you focus and share that, um, share the story of, of him having a coach. 
yeah, yeah. It was one of the underpinning ideas that I wanted to get across to people is to go back to one of my comments at the start of us talking here was there's a lot of misconception. And one of the misconceptions is I'm already a great coach, I'm an experienced coach, and so what would I need a coach for? Or what would my coach, what what could you possibly teach this head coach? And the response is, have you heard of Pep Guardiola? Hands down, the top coach in the top sport, the biggest sport in the top league in the world. And since he started his coaching career, his head coaching career, has had a head co- a coach with him the whole time. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester City, all of it. Someone to to be a sounding board, to to listen to when the the emotions bubble over, or when he's out of line to pull him back in, or when he needs a uh, he needs something extra, some more battery life, because maybe he's getting tired and there's uh, you know February or March when it's cold or whatever the situation is. Um, he's had that with him, and so this idea that you know. Uh, what could you possibly teach an experienced coach or uh, someone who's achieved the people when you actually zoom out and look at the people that have achieved the most in the world almost to a person they are being coached and and the the research behind that is is ericsson's work like Hmm. you know we're talking ten thousand hours the thing that was missing from malcolm gladwell's portrayal was that Almost every expert that Anders Ericsson ever studied had a coach by their early 20s in like every domain. And so, you know, again, it's not just my opinion. It's there's there's examples of Pep Guardiola and Eddie Jones and, and all of these really winning coaches, all these experts that are at the top of chess and violin and business and any domain that you can imagine are being and coached and for some reason in, in sport we still go oh it's okay i'm experienced i'm good i'm good already i can't possibly get better uh, and, and it's just a bit of a bizarre concept to me given that sport is a whole industry built on coaching <laughs> yeah and the benefits of coaching but we as the head coaches say i'm good i there's nothing more that i could learn or or, or develop it's such a bizarre concept. What did you call it in the book? The great irony, I thought. Well, the great uh, irony. Yeah. The great irony. I mean, that's a great phrase for, for oh, oh yeah, you, you want to perform? Oh, I've got those specialist skills about how you could perform on the pitch. So I'm a coach. I can coach you to do that. Um, but no mirror aspect there of thinking, hey, could someone coach me? It, it, is, it is that. I mean, that's, I suppose the key word here that it feels lonely for a lot of a lot of coaches. It feels as though you've taken the salary, you've got the badge, you've got the responsibility and the contract. You're on your own, um, and that feels like it's environmental. It feels like it's hierarchical from an employment setup point of view. Um, how? How frequently are you encountering this in your work with coaches? 
the loneliness. Yeah. Uh, I would say almost every coach that I work with, that, that's a starting point. Yeah. And again, because we're quite new into what does a coach having a coach look like, often it, it follows a little bit of that um, therapy route where something quite drastic needs to happen to them so they lose their job or they hit rock bottom or they're having problems at home or they are feeling very lonely or they've isolated themselves. That, that becomes the catalyst for reaching out for help, which uh, is its own maybe discussion that why do we have to wait, you know, same as the therapy line of thinking, why do we have to wait until we're lying face down in the ditch to, to go and speak to someone about how much we're drinking? Um, but I also recognise that there is this environmental uh, element of head coaching that you do need to be tough and self-reliant. That's what you're kind of indoctrinated into. So, yeah, the, the loneliness is a, is a pretty common starting point. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it is part of that role in that it imbues loneliness in, in its very nature, in the types of things that you need to communicate and do and the decisions that you need to make and that, People can't understand all the decision-making elements that go into it or, you know, you have to cut players or you have to fire staff or you have to hear tough things that never make the media. Uh, And so it can become quite isolating. And and that's why even one of the, the things anecdotally that means the most to me is hearing a coach say to me, your very presence makes me feel better. And think about that. So it's not loneliness isn't like, oh, there's no people around. You know, coaches are surrounded by people and still feel lonely in a crowd. But then when you come and you say, I'm I'm dedicated to you and helping you and I understand you because I've been in your role. And the presence of someone else like that makes that person feel better. That's how quickly we can start to move past this current world that we've created for head coaches and into something that I believe to be more healthy. We're not even talking about the performance elements yet. We're just talking about companionship. And what's your sense on... on, um where that coach of the coach, that second set of eyes, where they are best placed, are they external to an organization or do they, do they need the volume of experiences to see a certain dynamic, to see the flicker of someone's eyes? Do they need to be in situ within a, a, a sports club, for example? I think, Currently, it's definitely outside the organization, but spending time in the organization. You know, I, I talk to Neil Craig a lot about this, and this is his perspective too, and I've adopted it, is the, the ability to go into the organization, particularly as a head coach or a former head coach, you can pick up a lot in a day and a half. 
And so if you're spending a week with a team, the amount that you can pick up that's contextually relevant for when you leave or, you know, uh, go away and don't spend, you know, every waking hour with the, the team, there's a lot that you can take away. And so I think that allows you to keep an objectivity that is important and the ability to not potentially over accumulate emotional links to other people in the organization that then cloud the judgment or cloud your opinion on what the coach should do is important and so yeah i think at the moment the the best way for this to work is certainly to have an outside uh, like a close outsider um and then uh, you know i would look to more mature industries like CEOs, like if you look at how a lot of the executive coaches in Silicon Valley work, for instance, it's that model too. And, and it's the same argument. It's the, there's an objectivity that comes to being outside that allows you to see what they cannot see because they're in, in the daily work and emotionally tied to all of these people and these things. And so you need to be able to address those with them because it's coaching and you've got to say, I've got to say hard things to my coaches about what they might need to do to move to their next level or a conversation that they've been avoiding. And so often those are best that are just slightly removed from the environment so that you're not sucked into it and that clouds my judgment. Mm. So you mentioned Ericsson and the the work that he'd shared as part of the Harvard Business Review, I think it was, in in the book. Um, and I've, I've copied and pasted these into my notes in front of me. Um, I'm assuming that you, you bring forward or you have a responsibility and that you have a, you involve in the contracting when you're discussing whether you're a good fit for that, that, um, coach. So that there was the expert has a coach capable of giving constructive and even painful feedback that you just mentioned. So it might be uncomfortable, but it needs to be said. The expert picks up an unsentimental coach who challenges them and drives into a higher level of performance. And the coach identifies aspects of performance that the expert needs to improve to reach the next level of skill. Those sort of three together, I get, is that, is that is the terms of reference for how you would support a coach? Yeah, I think it's a great – and, again, I, I, I hadn't found that until I wrote the book. This is hmm. towards the end of his life, yeah, writing essentially a review of his life's work. And he goes into talking about actually having studied the people that are coaching the experts that he's studying and, and the common traits that they have that, that you just listed off there. So, again, not my – not my perspective on it. This is the the guy who's called the expert on experts and he's gone and looked at that. And, and yeah, certainly I've adopted that. I, I think that's a perfect explanation of what we're talking about here and moving even perceived experts have more levels. And that's that Pep Guardiola thing is he has a coach around him because he believes he has more to give and that he's not at his potential and reached his potential or he can't stay there on his own. And so, you know, Manel Estiate has to have difficult conversations with him but also identify what that next level might look like 
and then deconstruct that and say, well, here's the elements that are missing and here's how we can prepare you for those. And so for me, what that looks like is often really starting with the coach as a performer themselves and really looking at some basic things like what does the schedule look like and how are you going to navigate this schedule? You know, really what might seem like mundane things just haven't been applied to head coaches before. Turnaround times on on games, road trips, change of uh, change of time zone in in North America in particular, or in European football. We know just from really basic science the impacts that those things have on people who are asked to perform, uh, particularly perform knowledge work like we do, and 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 so. I start there, like how are we looking at how you perform and then are there some really elementary and fundamental things that we can implement to start to move towards getting towards that next level? That's the ultimate uh, achievement. But we, we need to start with some basics because the, you know coaching has kind of gone without guardrails for a long time and so some of the, the behaviours are well ingrained but not helpful. Yeah, right. And, and I think maybe I could just ask you a bit about that in a moment but around that, you know, if you've got a formula or if you've got almost a bit of an audit or a health check to, to things to potentially go through with coaches. But I'm curious about the the tone of those three statements, because they're similar to how we would support uh, professionals in different ways, where what we're not looking to do is is culture dependency. We're not looking to just contract and have a nice, healthy retainer for for ten years. Although let's not dismiss that completely out of hand. But um, the the point being is that you got if you're going to do a great job for somebody, you're going to you're going to want to empower them. And so it might feel feel like a bit of a, a bitter pill to swallow, and some people might bulk at some of the hard messages so how do you get how do you set that up with your coaches the other coaches that this is going to be direct this is going to be candid um i'm going to point out what what you need to be doing in the future for you to succeed and there's then that's going to confront a gap where you're not there yet um, and potentially it's still not progressing in the right way. How do you set that scene in the conversation? That's why I love talking to you, Steve. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I look at a lot of my coaching through the lens of what I've done with athletes, and the answers are often quite similar. Whilst the work is different, athletic work versus knowledge work, et cetera, a lot of the coaching principles are the same. And, and so I, I use this phrase explaining coaching to those being coached. And so that's where I would start is, uh, you know, I, I say no to a lot of coaches because, one, we need to trust each other. Often I don't trust that they actually want to be coached or that it's maybe a checkbox kind of thing 
um, or that if hard conversations did arise, that they would balk at that. Um, and so ultimately that's that feeling out, you know, early on that there really needs to be a solid agreement in place in terms of I can explain what this is going to look like. There's a chance that this gets tough because what you do is tough, but we can't drop the ball here. We can't stop communicating. Like we need to ride this out. And this is the, the ramification of that is that there's substantial benefits to you and ultimately your team. And so I, I put a lot of effort into that discovery phase. Do we trust each other? Do I trust you? Do you trust me? We've got to start there. And if we do, let's talk through, you know, what happens when things do get tough. What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? And again, I just to loop back, I look at that as a similar process to what we take our athletes through. We can go to them and say those things and like, look, this training program is going to be tough and you're going to hate me in this period, this period, and this period. We know, we know that up front and maybe in between too. But do you trust me enough to, to make this, you know, this is what it's going to look like? And so, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same process as, as far as I see it. But ultimately, it comes down to do you trust each other? And often I've found that with me, because I have a head coaching background of 15 years, a lot of the walls come down because we have an association immediately. You've felt what I felt and I felt what you felt. And so our, our barriers to each other and being able to talk to each other in a quite frank way are a bit lower than perhaps if someone hadn't had that experience and hasn't felt what you might feel. You might be a little bit more guarded. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I think about it. Mm. I suppose it, it sort of loops me back to this question about, or that's in my mind about whether you can – whether those coaching skills are more universal. Because when you talked about in the book primary coaching skills, the three areas, awareness, communication, and decision-making, you know, that, that feels very applicable to a multitude of different environments. As a, as a CEO, are you aware of what's going on? Have you got the ability in the and the presence, potentially charisma, to be able to communicate powerfully and regularly to keep the troops informed about what's going on? And are you equipped to make messy decisions, decisions that, that ultimately won't come on your table if they are clean? Um, and so you have to have that capability. And what you've just sort of described about those sort of coaching relationships that you might be able to facilitate some of those coaching skills just just listening to you there it just feels as though actually those are they are we are guardians of people we're supporting other people to to uh to a better future aren't we whether it's in sport or in in business or elsewhere yeah exactly right and and again a lot of the the early trajectory in my work and it's all individualized, but it, it does follow some patterns. And one is that 
a lot of the behaviors are quite detrimental to your ability to do those those three things those primary skills and you know again there's there's plenty of research around these in particular and these these are really that the we talk about the energy systems for athletes which is obviously physiological but these are the energy systems these are the batteries that we have we can recharge or uh, you know degrade awareness communication and decision making they naturally decline throughout the day for knowledge workers and so uh, we engage in so many behaviors that are detrimental even to just the level of our ability on that day to be alert, be aware, be attentive. You know, attention being the most fragile one of the three. Um, but being the most critical to a head coach where you are looking for a nuanced running pattern or where a player strikes a ball but, um, or you know, w- what the opposition are trying to do to us. Uh, and yet we still try to persevere with this toughness idea and, you know, I haven't slept and I've been up watching you know, film and and it's all actually detrimental to those three skills of which we need the most. And so a lot of my early work is in detangling that for coaches and saying uh, we need to get you back to a level of, of having access to your full capability. Then we can work on it like a skill. But ultimately, if it's, a, if it's an energy pack, we need the energy pack full before we can start working on it like a skill. So you need your full capability to do it. And so, uh, yeah, that that is a big change piece as well because you're talking about the fundamental behaviours that, that coaches engage in on a day-to-day basis and whether they're being helpful or harmful to themselves and their ability to ultimately perform the, the things that we do most. Yeah, I think it does take strength for coaches to push back against workload culture of presenteeism work harder perform worse that that's ultimately the equation that a lot of people go for you know that that feels as though if i'm busy and i'm walking around the office with paper and and i've got my head down it looks like i'm doing work or if i'm first in the car park last out there's a tick box somewhere that happens that that i'm doing a good job um I was struck by the the section that you put around NFL players' feedback, and the first one was, we think workaholism shows competence, but the players think it's stupid. Now, this is really interesting because there's that sort of busy work that, that people are portraying, but actually the people that you really need to influence <laughs> are potentially cynical. And when I read that in your book, I just thought the number of times I've thought about other people, that does not look good. The number of times I've I've seen athletes look and say, right, the coach is overworked, they're stressing me out. And then I've actually caught myself doing that too, where I'm I'm locked into that cycle of i've got to push harder i've got to lean in more and i've got to do more oh hang on a minute i probably look a bit silly really if i'm in a high performance environment and i'm not actually high performing anymore because of the way i am conducting myself or that i'm i've succumbed to 
a snarky comment about, oh, half day is it? Another thought, no, no, I need to stay. I need to stay a bit longer. Take it easy um, this week. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that very act of simply asking potentially the players, <laughs> am I doing the best job possible? Could I, could I improve the way I work? Could be a very powerful way of understanding your effectiveness and breaking some of those cycles. Exactly. And again, that's that's just a regular coaching cue that we would use, you know, I've started using in in things like uh, training sessions. You know, did you get the skill that we were talking about? Do you understand it? Can you recite it? You know, a lot of Doug Lamont's kind of work around working memory and um, et cetera. But yeah, so there was two examples with this, and I love that they're both from the NFL because it is the ultimate individualism display of masculinity. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be in the, you know, we think football coaches are bad at, you know, being in at 6 a.m. The NFL guys are like 2.30 a.m., right, or, or just sleep in the office. They don't even bother going Oh, home. that's super hardcore, that is. Cool. They must be doing a great job. Yeah, exactly. And, and ironically, to where we were just talking about attention and awareness. Like we know it's such a detailed sport that <laughs> sleeping two hours a night on the on a futon on the that is what we've equated to. Oh, I can notice the right cues that are going on in the game. But yeah, the 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 players association started their own poll of the players that played at each team. And they release them publicly on their website. An example that I use is that, you know, well, not for him, I don't like coaches being fired, but Josh McDaniels of the Oakland Raiders or Vegas Raiders was the example. He's since been fired since the book came out. So, um, but it was about his players reporting that they were the most inefficient with their time in the league. And what they meant by that was the players reported that they didn't need to do half the things that they were doing. They didn't need to be in the meetings. They didn't need to be overbearing. They understood what the coaches were trying to tell them, but they were kept longer than their peers on other teams. And the report went in to say something along the lines of, you know, that the, the top seven teams that reported the best efficiency all made the playoffs. And so there's this kind of duality to that around the that there is a link to time efficiency. And what we mean by that is like better coaching, not more coaching, more effective coaching, actually leading to performance. And that teams that are doing well aren't necessarily working harder, they're working better. And then you've got this example of this coach that spends keeps his players too long, spends too long in meetings, but ultimately he loses his job. It's the last time he'll probably ever be a head coach in the NFL because this is his second go at it and and he's failed miserably both times. Um, and so that, that was the first example. And there's a second of, of just a former Patriots player who talks about getting way too much information and it actually slowing him down on the field. Um, you know, Rob Ninkovich is his name. He's won multiple Super Bowls in the Belichick era. And a, a linebacker is supposed to be, they're the cerebral players. They're the ones that are supposed to want every detail so they can read what the opposition are going to do. 
and he says, by the end of the season, I had all these sheets of paper in the backseat of my car that I never read, too much detail. And he said it slows him down and it made him almost at a certain point be a deer in the headlights. When a 220-pound running back's coming at you, you don't want to be a deer in the headlights. You just want to be able to go on. And he was thinking about all this detail that his coaches had given him that slowed him down. And so that's what I mean by that comment around our, our players don't actually, they don't appreciate the extra work. They don't think it's necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, often I think they would rather see you go home and spend time with your kids and know that you're coming back into the, you know, with, with you know, bruffed hair and having not slept on the futon, they would appreciate that more. And the idea being that that leads to more effective coaching so that you can go home and see your family because I know that that's beneficial for me as a player and I'm sure it is to you as a coach too. Um, and so, again, it's just un- unpacking this idea of this display of chronic individualism that we think is great leadership and then, our athletes just go, no, it's not. Hmm. So the statement there was, we value sharing vast amounts of information, but it can make our players perform worse. I think that definitely the breed, the pe- the, the population that I'm from, scientists can have um, a tendency to, 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 to be culpable for that. I've, I've I've been taught how to make a graph, so I'm going to make a graph, and I'm going to tabulate that information underneath to replicate the information because that's what we did when I was studying. Um, it does feel as though the simplification of ideas and those strong tendencies that you referred to, players want those strong tendencies. They want to know. What's the general approach that we're going for? And and I don't really need to be flipping and flopping all day long to the latest change, maybe refinement of strategy, but ultimately that strong tendency of how we're approaching, that feels like it's uplifting and actually can can be instructive. It can be powerful to, to focus on rather than more and more, more and more overloading. That's fascinating. I love that section of the book um, because it, it sort of potentially acts as a relief valve. It seemed as though it was a sense of you, you could have permission to actually do quality work rather than just volume of work. I think that's the change that we need to make. I, I said before, you know, the idea of better versus more. And I think I think this is the solution to what we're talking about is coaching grew, you know, we're talking about uh, even 20 years ago, but essentially coming out of amateurism and then like part-timeism into full professionalism and it was all great and like more time actually did equate to greater performance because we were going from zero time or like, you know, spare time to, oh, the Germans train full-time and so they win all the medals at the Olympics or the, you know. But then we've gotten to this point, there is no more time. (laughs) We have packed every second of our preparation time 
with something, more meetings, more information, more analytics now, more data, more this, more that. And we've run out of time. And so the way to rectify more isn't less. The way to rectify more is better. And the great thing is better creates less. And, and that's really what the, the NFL players are saying is don't, don't think we've got to go to the other end of the spectrum and give me less coaching. It's give me better coaching so that I know the, the key things. Simplify this for me. Don't give me all the downs and distances. Give me the strong tendencies. And by knowing that, remember, I'm an expert too. For me to get into the NFL, like the numbers on me even being here are, are off the charts difficult. <laughs> so remember, I'm good at what I'm doing. You're good at what you're doing. Let's do them well together. And you can go and pick your kids up from school. Well, what a great result. And we still win on the weekend, hopefully. Hmm. It's a, it's a strong running cry. I'm going to ask you four-pronged final question. Okay. Four-pronged. From, from an employer's perspective, the coach's perspective, the people who might be in support, so the backroom team, and from an athlete's perspective, um, what would be your advice to those people? So what was your advice? to those who employ coaches? This is my favorite one at the moment. Uh, I mean, coaches need development. They need coaching. Uh, and it needs to be written into their contracts and part of the conversation when you're hiring them needs to be when it's when the, when the question is who are you bringing with you i think it should be okay your assistants and your scientists and your analysts and but what who's coaching you that's what they ask ceos in silicon valley that's what they they, they they'll tell you you know you can't be our ceo unless you Tell us, or we're not going to give you venture capital unless you tell us who's going to coach you, because we know that there's a link between that and and your performance. And, and I think it's starting to get to that level in sport. Who's going to look after you, so that we can arrest that trend of zero point eight years in the championship? We shouldn't want that. We shouldn't want that to be the statistic. Uh, like sport should be ashamed that that's. A statistic um, and so me as a club I would look at that and go well we're going to talk about that at the interview we're going to talk about how do I as the owner or the board beat that statistic I want eight years not 0 0.8 and so here's what we're going to pour into you because we believe that you're the person to, to help our team and I think for employers that's that's uh, that's the next step is really believing that they're not the finished product and that it can't just be, okay, here's the keys and good luck and I'll probably see you on the way out in, uh, in eight weeks. That's not high performance. Mm -hmm. we, we can do better than that. I know you've got a lot of money tied up in this. We can do better. I mean, it might be of a meta irony rather than the great irony, but 
it's not good CEOing, is it, to to be making decisions that are that can can change on a sixpence or the change of which could be bad luck run. So yeah, and there's a rallying cry there, isn't it, for for you to be perhaps thinking about your performance as a CEO and how you're employing people. Exactly. The the greatest irony is if you asked that person, so if if I'm an owner or a board member and I'm hiring, you're you're a very smart person. You to get to that level, you know, and so these aren't dummies that we're talking about. These are very successful and smart people who know lots of things about lots of things. That's why it's the, maybe the greatest irony that if you asked someone at that level whether they would invest in a company that changed their CEO every 0.8 years, they would say, not on your life. If a leader changes, that, it would be volatile and there's no, you know, there's no way that company can grow if I put my money into it. Like I'd lose all my money. And so... Yeah, the, the, maybe the greatest irony is that we think that that's how football teams or, or basketball teams can run, changing their coach that, that rapidly. I, I don't understand that one, and I, I hope to meet an owner one day who'll tell me <laughs> why they think that way. But I, yeah, um, that one baffles me. There we go. You said that you haven't got another title for your next book. There's that. There's that one. That, that's the topic. Um, all right. I, I had a yeah. question, didn't I? I was a four four part question. Then. So that was employers, coaches. What's your advice for coaches? And I'm going to frame this specifically: who feel isolated. Reach out. Reach out to someone. Like make the first step. Uh, the again, I was talking earlier about kind of that that therapy idea and the, the same kind of patterns as there. Like, don't don't wait for rock bottom. You don't have to um, seek someone out. Seek someone out who's maybe not coaching coaches and and ask like, oh, can you have a conversation with me? Or, hey, I'm interested in exploring this. Um, go and make the first step and what you'll find is people are delighted to hear from you in the first place and that even if it, it ends up in a bit of a more of an informal you know person to bounce ideas off that's better than the isolation that you're experiencing at the moment and so it doesn't need to be me I'm not trying to work with the world I'm trying to work with a, a handful of people myself and so but what I'm trying to do is open up doors for everyone to be able to to receive coaching in this world because I know the power of it. And so, yeah, if you're a head coach and you're feeling lonely, just take the first step. Get in touch with someone, um, even just someone that you trust uh, or a colleague as a starting point. You're potentially going to need to coach coaches of coaches. You're going to need a you're going to need a workforce of people if if uh, if this tips. So there you go. That's what that's what's coming down the line for you. All right, we support third, Yeah, the third part then support staff. What's your advice for those who are are 
I guess, charged with delivering a specific expertise or they've got a specific responsibility like medical, whatever it might be, what role could they play to support coaches in this space? Yeah, I think the advice that I give, because I get asked, you know, presentations and things like this, and my answer is remarkably simple, is just ask how the head coach is doing. If you were to look at my work through Tough Stuff and Second Set of Eyes, I think it, it, the aim is to, and this is my, my vision in general, is to rehumanize head coaching. It's lost all of its human elements. We're talking about just getting it discarded and, and, you know, everyone thinks you're an idiot. And, um, you know, often the, the dynamic with staff is because the medical team have their goals. And the coach might not uh, kind of help you facilitate those goals that you're trying to get for your department to have success. We just say, oh, the coach is an idiot. And, and they're not. They're a human being who's trying to lead a massive organisation um, with all sorts of stakeholder uh, inputs that you don't see. And it's not just your department that's important in, in all of that. And so... My advice to, to any support staff is is remember that it's a human being and the best way to just connect with a human being is just say, how are you doing? Just check in on, on whether they're okay. And the double reason for that is that they, they have such a huge bearing on everyone's success. And so this is in everyone's interest to take care of our head coaches, just like our CEOs, just like our, our military commanders. For all of us that work with them, it, we hugely benefit from their success. And so we should want them to do well, not just go, oh, he's an idiot because the, the, boys, the boys or the girls train for 15 minutes longer and my GPS data is now skewed. Like, come on. Again, we can, we can do so much better than that. Uh, we're working with people. Ask how your people are doing. Ask how the coach is doing. And if they heard the, hear the word fine, they need to go again, yeah? Yeah, go again. No, that's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you'll find out what that means in the book. Yes. Danny Terry, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, athletes, I'm just intrigued to get your thoughts because I wonder if there's a growing, growing responsibility or an opportunity for athletes to be agents of change here, creating a better environment um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on on an athlete supporting the coach? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, perhaps one of the greatest change agents in all of this, and I would say it's probably just something to remember that the coach is in the arena with you. They're not separate. They're not like this outside part of the team. And this is really for all coaches and support staff or that everyone is that they are in the arena with you. Um, often literally, but you know, I, I think there's kind of been this part of that dehumanization process has been like this separation of, you know, we're out there and we're competing and everyone else is separate. They don't get it. And and and, and that's not true. Um, and so I'd say just for athletes is re 
remember that they are in the arena with you. They've invested everything in your success. And they're not just this, this kind of vacant uh, side person. They're a participant in, in the game, particularly the head coaches. They actually do participate in the game. And so, you know, I, I think there's just a, a bit of a let's remember that. And that then if that's the case, then we are uh, kind of obligated to make sure that, yeah, the environment is, is also good for them and uh, because we're all trying to tackle these really huge problems together. And the way that we try to do things that have never been done before is we do them together. Mm. It's, um, it feels as though athletes have become increasingly empowered to say enough's enough at the moment. I, I need some time out. Um, it feels as though those pauses in athletic careers, um, are become, it's becoming n more normal, um, becoming more frequent and more people are taking the leadership to say, I, I need to manage how I am at the moment. Um, I wonder when we'll see that for, for coaches. And it's almost like the athletes are starting to sort of show coaches how they could be operating in the future too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we've just seen a, a great example this week, right, with, with Owen Farrell and, and you know, uh, still playing club rugby. And if you've ever spent any time around Saracens, like, uh, I mean, what a culture and an environment in the club they have there. And and so, even that right, like the the safety that he's able to feel in that environment, whilst potentially not in others, um, you know, a, again is a is another lead that we can all learn from. In that, how critical it is for us to create safe environments that protect uh, our mental health in particular, and and again, coaches are participants in that process too um you know I, I write in the book about the criticism of coaches in in the last couple of years has been around creating cultures of fear but we operate in a culture of fear also hmm. i can remember i can remember asking my boss once for a sabbatical and <laughs> he just laughed and i ended up just thinking well i'll just make one and uh, I'll yeah. just create that myself. So, um, look, I love talking to you, Cody. Um, there's, there is sort of a dichotomous perspective here is that this is, this is sort of revelationary stuff. This is, I said it I think last time, pioneering this space. But at the same time, you are just discussing how it should be. You're discussing how uh, it feels on the inside. Uh, you're sharing the intricacies of the profession. So you're, you're doing that in a way that it's just being honest about what, what goes on. Uh, but power to you. Keep writing. Uh, keep sharing this information. Um, yeah, and and uh, all the best with the book. It's a, it's a great read. Uh, thanks, David. Thanks for having me again. Showing interest in my little niche topics, I, I know they are quite niche, but um, yeah, if I would have a, a message, you just summed it up perfectly. And again, this is why I love talking to you. So 
perceptive, but that it is quite a leap. But ultimately, the what we're talking about here is coaching. The the things that we often give to our athletes, I'm just taking a lot of those and saying, well, what if we did that for our coaches too? And so the solutions aren't this like drastic change that's going to, uh, you know, they're actually quite simple changes and we know them because we give them to our athletes. And so, yeah, it's not this big scary thing that's, that's going to happen to people. It's just that, um, uh, you know, they're small changes that are going to lead to better and, and higher performing cultures. And isn't that what we're after at the end of the day? Brilliant. Cody, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, mate. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week